had two wonderful comments from people the last couple of days. Someone told me yesterday that they they went home from the first night and just began to read Matthew and just the, the sense of freedom and the difference, a different viewpoint of looking at it. Someone else came this morning and said they were reading Isaiah of all places, Isaiah 40, and just saw a very different father making himself known. Comfort, comfort you, my people. And just seeing the heart of the father that we mostly don't think is there. We've gotten this horrible stereotype of the Old Testament God that is this perfect holy deity that is fully offended by disgusting humanity and somehow has to work around all of that till Christ can come. And, and yet when you read, the, if you read the Old Testament without those blinders, without that lens, if you read it through the, the, the Jesus, what we've been calling the Jesus lens, if Jesus is the culmination of scripture, if the person of Jesus is everything the Old Testament was pointing to and everything the New Testament is pointing back to, then it really does let you get into some of the scriptures that we'll talk about today with a very, very different view. Today we're going to cover the Old Testament. We're going to start for Genesis and get all the way to Malachi, but we're going to find, just like I did with the New Testament, we're not being helped with the story by the way the books were arranged. This is, was arranged as a library. I'll tell you a little bit about the arrangement going on, but it doesn't. Malachi was not the last book written, though Genesis was probably the first. Malachi was not the last. And so we're going to help you with the story. But again, as we talk about the story, there's a bigger story than the chronological story. That's why I don't think the answer is, oh, we should put these books in a chronological, buy a chronological Bible and everything will be okay. Because there is a chronology that's important. But there's a bigger story going on that we'll talk about. That's why I called this one the rescue. I've got a friend who calls the story of Noah specifically, the greatest rescue never told. Because we don't read it like a rescue. We like an angry God wiping out almost all of civilization. And we don't see it as a rescue at all. We see it as, oh my gosh, we crossed the line, God blew up, and now we've got to start all over again. And that's not the story. I actually think the Old Testament, we could say, is the greatest story never told. It's that unpacking of, of God finding His children lost. And then beginning from the very moment of our lostness. Not to want to punish or curse, but to win us back out of where we got lost and into the light of His kingdom and the light of His glory. So that's the story we're going to look at. The best place to start with Old Testament history, I think, is in the New Testament. I told you that earlier in the study. And the Old Testament has some great perspectives of the Old Covenant that we're going to look back on. The first, though, isn't in the Old Testament. It's actually in Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a, is a psalm of Asaph. It's not even one of David's. Asaph, we'll talk about him maybe a little bit. He was a worship leader uh, in the temple uh, or in the tabernacle. And uh, he wrote some of the psalms as well. This one is a long one. It's one of the longer psalms. It's not Psalm 119. That's a killer. It's Psalm 78. It's a long one. The theme of the passage, if you read it, I think this is a great theme of the Old Testament. It is man's unfaithfulness in the face of God's faithfulness. It's man not staying true to God. God continuing to make himself available and rescuing Israel when it gets stuck and when it gets lost. And I think that's a great place to start. So before you read the Old Testament... If you're going to head off to Genesis at some point, if you spent your three years in the Gospels and then your 27 years in the, in the epistles, that's I'm obviously overstating things. But if, if you really get seasoned there so that you can go back and take on the Old Testament, you might want to start with Psalm 78. It gives you kind of a, a view of the Old Testament that isn't the one we have adopted in our post-New uh, Testament age of looking back and going, wow, that was a creepy God at a creepy time. Because what they're coming up with is this God is incredibly faithful. Some of the sermons in the New Testament, I think Jesus' parable that we call the prodigal son, I like to call it the parable of the incredible father, I think that's an Old Testament history parable that bridges it to the new. 
It is God in the garden giving us our inheritance. Here, you can have it all on your own if you want. And like that parable of the prodigal, we took that inheritance. And rather than glorifying God with it, we spend it on our own passions and desires. And when Jesus tells that story, I think he's well aware that he's telling a story that began in a garden when God gave us that inheritance. And some of us got lost in rebellion. And as we're going to see, even in the Old Testament and the New, some of us got lost like the older brother in our religious performance for this demanding and exacting and terrifying God. At least that's our perception of him. So I think Jesus gives us a look at the whole story right there in the parable of what many people call the prodigal. I call the incredible father because he's the only consistent person in that parable. There's two sons, not one. And we focus on just the prodigal. We're missing what Jesus is telling us about this father that is so loving that even when his son is in a far off place, that father is still looking down the road every day, hoping today's the day that son comes home. And when that son comes home, I'm not, coming, I'm not gonna let him grovel. I'm not gonna let him be a slave in my house. He's gonna come back as a son and we're gonna give him the robe and give him the ring and give him the sandals and light the barbecue and kill the fatted calf and invite my friends and have a party. Jesus is really bridging old and new right there. He's telling the story of redemption. And then Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he starts from the time of Abraham and works his way up through David, talking again about man's persistent unfaithfulness and God's unrelenting mercy that continues to seek and find us. And then he says the most provocative words that actually almost, that, that lead to his stoning, where he talks about God does not dwell in buildings made with hands. Well, that overturns such a significant thing from the old covenant. And what we're going to find is there are many, many things that the old covenant accepts as presuppositions that God wins us out of over that revelational flow, as we've talked about, that God keeps stirring us into a greater reality. And we're going we're to see that. Stephen nails one of those in Acts 7 and then has this incredible vision and then they just can't handle it anymore, so they got to kill him. And so Stephen dies. It's Stephen's last sermon, by the way. And then Paul in Acts chapter 13, he's in Pisidian Antioch, and he's giving them his view of the Old Testament history leading up to the coming of the Messiah. These are great resources because when you read these, these sermons, these big summaries of, of the Old Testament, you're getting a very, very different view, a view I hope we get today as we talk through some of these realities ourselves. So Old Testament history, I want to just throw this back on the screen. This is a slide we looked at earlier. This is the Old Testament focus on love. If you remember, we did a thing about fear or love, or we to love him or fear him. And we did talk about God containing the world with fear in the Old Covenant. We'll talk about some of that. But even in the Old Covenant, you have these great expressions of God being a lover, of his loving kindness being everlasting, of his mercies enduring forever. That's, that is the big language of the Old Covenant. It's not God's angry, God's mean, you fail, I want to kill you, and then I'm going to give you this son, okay, he loves you enough that I'll let you in my kingdom. That's not the story. The story is this incredibly compassionate God who knows we've gotten lost in the darkness and now wants to find us in the darkness and invite our way out to something more real. So I won't go over that list. I just wanted to remind you that we had talked about it. So let's go back to the story. You've seen this row of grapevines before. Now we're going to flesh it out a little bit. And I'm very going to quickly give you the overview of this story. And then we're going to go back and we're going to break it up in its little individual bits. And I'm going to see how the books that were written chronologically fit into the story 
and then the kind of spiritual story that's unfolding in those chronological accounts. So we've got it from Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Nehemiah, Jesus, and Paul. Again, these aren't the most important people. These are people that were at a crossroads. At, at this point, something shifts in the story. Abraham is a major shift. Moses, another one. David, another one. And like grapevines that send shoots back the other way, there's an overlapping of things left over from Adam that overlap into Moses. And Moses goes on and overlaps into David and David. And so we're, getting, we're going to get the full story of what's going on in all the interludes. But just to help you with the chronology, I think it's really helpful to have these eight pillars that we've got to say, okay, now if I want to think through the story, all I have to remember, and it doesn't make a neat little acronym, unfortunately. It doesn't you know, spell it every good boy does fine or anything like that. <laughs> At least we haven't thought of anything that cute yet. But it starts with Adam, obviously. Then Abraham is a shift. Moses, another. David, another. Isaiah and Nehemiah. Nehemiah is probably the least known of, of that list, but he stands at a very pivotal moment. But around him is Zerubbabel and Ezra, and they're every bit as important. But Nehemiah, we kind of put the stake there because he's the last of this restoration that's coming back to Israel. So again, not the most significant players, but important players. Let's put some dates to this so that we can see exactly what kind of timeline we're talking about. Adam, we don't have a clue uh, when that was, timeline, even trying to trace it through all the begats and the, uh, the genealogies, not knowing if everybody, because some genealogies leave people out, so you don't know the genealogy is catching everybody. It's catching a lot of people and how long they lived back in the day. So Adam, don't know where that is. We can pretty much type Abraham to somewhere around the 2100s BC. That's where he was. Moses comes uh, about 500 years after that, 40, 1446 very specifically. Uh, the reason I'm using a date there and not a span, that's when we know that the exodus happened. Uh, by the archaeology. The two significant dates, the two significant events in the Old Covenant are the Exodus uh, under Moses and then the exile that comes between Isaiah and Nehemiah where they lost into Babylonian captivity. Those are the two big events that define the, the course of the story. We'll talk about that more. 1446 is the Exodus. David's around 1000 B.C., Isaiah 700 B.C., so 300 years later. And then we get to Nehemiah, which is the restoration from captivity. Actually give you dates on the exile. It's, there, there were two of them, and uh, so we'll look at that as to when they went into captivity, and then we move on toward Jesus later. So that just gives you a sense of the date and the flow of what kind of time frame that we're dealing with. And then these are the books, and don't worry about I mean, You have this chart in the back of your packet, so you don't need to write all this stuff down. I know you just got a little, little bit of chart. If you turn all the way to the back page, you've got this full chart, so you don't need to replicate it. Um, in this chart, it's just going to talk about where these books fit in, and most of them you, you know pretty clearly where they fit in, uh, but we'll work through the full chart of that as so as we get ready then to talk about the Old Testament, there's a couple of things that I want us to take a look at. One, we can talk about the value that the New Testament says we find in the Old Testament. We've already talked a little bit about that. Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, and he talks about going back through the whole of the Old Covenant to show how Jesus was being revealed as the heart of the Father. That's one to hold on to. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 has a whole discussion about how Israel is always our example and that's, I think, the discernment it takes to read through the Old Covenant. There's some things in which Israel is fully misinformed about God and are reacting about God in ways that we don't need to react. So they're even, they're even a bad example at times of things. But they're also a good example. There's a lot of stories and incidences of, of, of people sensing God's will and things God says and what it impacts about God 
It's incredibly wonderful. And then they become our example of, are we going to live after the flesh and do our own thing and end up as lost as they got lost? Are we going to learn to live inside this affection of the Father and therefore live differently and live free of our flesh and begin to embrace and know who He is? And that leads to a very, very different story. And so that's... uh, Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 is another place. Hebrews 11, the litany of faith that we talked about last night, that gives us a really good chronology of the old covenant and how people were responding in faith to God and how that faith cost them something, even though they didn't get the full inheritance. They, don't know what it, they didn't know what it was to live shamelessly free in the life of the Father. There was no consciousness of sin that was removed, not by the sacrifices, not even by God's engagements with them. They still had a sense of their unworthiness, which is why when God makes himself known in the Old Testament, whether it's to Moses in the rock, whether it's to Isaiah in his vision, they just collapse in their own sense of unworthiness. They're, they they no other choice. The holy God comes near broken humanity, and they retreat in that kind of fear. So we have those places. And then I want to point out the last one, and that's a scripture we went over very quickly last night. When Paul was talking to the Bereans after he'd been in Philippi, and he goes down to Berea, and he's talking about this gospel, it says of the Bereans, they were more noble-minded than most because they went back to search the scriptures to see if these things were so. What scriptures did they search? Did they have the New Testament? Did they have the Gospels? Did they have Acts? Did they have Romans? They didn't have any of that. When the Bereans go back to search the scriptures to see if the things that Paul was saying about the New Covenant was true, they were searching the Old Covenant scriptures. And in those Old Covenant scriptures, they found the same story. And so that gives us hope. There's a better story here than we've been sold. As I've said to you last time, most of what we've been taught about about the old covenant is what we use to sustain a religion we call Christianity. Now, I hope you're okay with this. I don't think Jesus came to start a new religion. I don't think he said, you know what, Judaism isn't working, so I'm going to start Christianity. I think Jesus came, as Bruxy Cavey says in the book called The End of Religion, he said, Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. Jesus came to undermine in the human spirit that which cries out for a religion. That a religion is just a false security blanket. It's a set of rules and rituals and guidelines and processes that help us feel like, okay, we're earning something with God. That's, to me, what religion is at its heart. And I'm using it in a negative sense. When James says this is pure and undefiled religion to serve the widows and orphans in their distress, he's using it in a very positive sense, and that's legitimate use too. But I'm, I'm talking about Jesus, I don't think, came to leave us with a religion called Christianity. I think we created that. And we create it mostly out of the Old Covenant. And it mostly needs fear to survive. So we view, because there isn't a lot of fear base in the New Testament, though I notice we're all very aware of those very few scriptures in the New Testament that do go, maybe we should be scared of God because they've been used so much. Fear is the way we manipulate people for religious performance. It is the way we do that. God's love is so much greater and invites us into a greater reality. So let's take a look at the Old Testament in a moment. We're going to find out there are things said about God that we now know are not true. For instance, it says God awakened from sleep. Did he really? Do we have a God who sleeps? And we find out later, no, this God never slumbers. So there are things that they're perceiving about God that we're going to find out are not true. Those are minor ones. There are major ones like just how angry is this God? And it is often phrased in the Old Testament, God's anger burned against them. We've got to take that to the Jesus of Scripture and say, was Jesus, did Jesus live that way? Does he always, when something would go on around him, even when the Pharisees were trying to kill him, does he burn in anger against Pilate, against Caiaphas, against... And he doesn't. 
Now we've got to say maybe there are misperceptions in the Old Testament. I think that's where the discernment comes in. To know Jesus so well, the Jesus of Scripture and the Jesus I'm growing to know in my own life, so that when I read through here, I'm seeing Jesus come to life. And I'm also recognizing those things to say, wow, that isn't the way God is. Can you imagine them living with the thought that he was?